She has a dragon. Welcome to Westworld The Recapables as part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I am your host, David Shoemaker. Today we're talking season two, episode three, Virtu A Fortuna. You got it. Yes! We're doing this podcast before the airing of the TV show without the benefit of subtitles or Reddit groupthink or a safety net. In this episode, we get India World, uh, a Shogun World tease, a lot of Peter Abernathy, and an epic or epic fight scene at Fort Forlorn Hope, and maybe a major new cast member. I am joined here today for my laboratory debriefing by the only guest so far who could have me decommissioned and put into cold storage, Ringer Editor-in-Chief, Sean Fennessy. Yes, How you doing? the Meg White's here, Jack White. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and as always, the guy who left his comfort zone a long time ago, the one and only Danny Heifetz. How are you doing, Danny? I want you to want it, David. I appreciate that, man. Sean, before we get into breaking down everything that happened in this week's episode, what is your tweet-length review of this week's episode of Westworld? The world is only so big that it feels small. I like that. That's really good. What we're going to be talking about, of course, this week, and probably now for every week after this, is uh, the world outside of Westworld. And we don't just mean whatever weird version of Hong Kong on the moon that we saw last time, <laughs> uh, but Tiger World, uh, Shogun World. Colonial World. Yeah, Colonial World. I mean, we had a lot of different potential names for what the, the yeah, Bush Gardens, <laughs> Knott's Berry Farm. What else was on the board? I don't know. Much like Bush Gardens and Knott's Berry Farm, more so than Disneyland, you can actually see like the pipes and the chain link fence about fifteen feet away from every line you're standing in. Yes. So these are these are lesser theme parks. It seems we're going to dig deep into all of these crazy worlds out there and all of the the you know new friends that are inhabiting them, as well as. Uh, a really weird battle scene. But before we get into all that stuff, let me tell you everything that happened in this episode of Westworld. Cue up your zither cover music because we open in colonial India, or the Delos approximation thereof, and an attractive gentleman making a pass at someone who IMDb is calling Grace. They end up back in her room, and before the magic happens, she shoots him to make sure he's a host. He's not. Then they're on a tiger hunting safari, and the hosts go nuts and start killing everybody. I, These I, violent delights have violent ends. Can't you? Can't you put the gun down? Our dude gets killed, but Grace somehow escapes, although she's chased by a Bengal tiger out of India world and onto some train tracks, and she tries to shoot it, but they both tumble into the sea. Cut to the present, where Carl Strand and Bernard and company are investigating a massacred Westworld lab, and hey, there's Charlotte, who wants to know where Peter Abernathy is. For what it's worth, she's treating Bernard very weirdly. Flash back now to Charlotte and Bernard two weeks before, and they found Abernathy. He's being held hostage, along with some Delos folk, because he's dressed like a human, by Rebus and his crew of rebellious hosts. Charlotte Bernard knock Rebus out and reboot him as a hero when he kills his cronies. Then Charlotte Bernard get Abernathy, but Abernathy refuses to escape in favor of staying to fight for his home against the Confederados who were there now and who beat him up and who capture him and they capture Bernard. But Charlotte runs away and escapes on horseback. Glory, glory, hallelujah. At Confederado headquarters, or Fort Forlorn Hope as they call it, Dolores and her posse arrive, and she introduces her ghost soldiers and her fancy Delos gun and is accepted by Colonel Brigham. When a Confederado arrives that night with Union sympathizers, Dolores recognizes that one of them is her papa. Teddy doesn't, by the way. And Papa recognizes her too, sort of, but he is too worried about the cows. Dolores tells Bernard that she's found her own voice and says that they should be fighting for their survival, then asks him what's wrong with her dad. Bernard realizes that there's something buried underneath his programming. It's Charlotte's info dump. Duh. As long as he's with you, they'll be following you. To let them go. 
Meanwhile, Maeve, Hector, and Sizemore are journeying through Westworld, where they meet some scary Native American hosts who want Sizemore, and interestingly, they won't obey Maeve's commands. So Maeve and company run away and get into an elevator to a lab. In an underground tunnel, Sizemore finds out that Maeve and Hector are lovers, and his mind is blown because that violates the script, but somehow he still knows everything Hector's going to say before he says it. Then, boom, here's Armistice with a flamethrower. Everybody runs away and finds Felix and Sylvester, and hey, the gang's all here and alive, and they get in another elevator. Any thoughts on where we should be going? Sorry, we left my comfort zone a long time ago. Now back to Charlotte, who finds the Delos goon squad and insists on going with them to storm Fort Forlorn Hope. At first, things are going smoothly for Team Delos, and they get Abernathy and they run away, despite Dolores going ham and trying to get him back. After that, it's all Team Splendor, though. Dolores' crew locks the Confederados out of the fort and then shoots them through the door, which lures in the Delos army, and then boom! Angela shoots the Nitro, and Delos is done, and then Dolores has the Confederados put to death, but Teddy lets them live. Sheesh, says Dolores. All my men, their blood is on your hands. Truth is, we don't all deserve to make it. And now we're back with Grace, who survived the tiger attack and her time in the sea, and she's crawling out of the water only to find the scary white painted native folk waiting for her. And then we're back with Maven friends, and they're walking through the snow and they find a campfire and Sizemore freaks out because holy shit, it's Samurai World, let's go! So this episode, needless to say, was a little bit all over the place. It was all over the place. I Last week there were like, three or four different timelines and it was a very choppy episode but when you put them in sequence when you put them in you know, each set of characters or whatever in, in its own paragraph it made sense they fit they fit this one makes sense too except you kind of there's all this like weird st- dangling stuff I liked when you said and then they get in an elevator like, yeah <laughs> that's, I feel like you could say that in every episode there was a lot of running away in this episode I think Heifetz was the one that first pointed this out to me it is honestly candidly a little confusing for me to watch. I, I, it's hard to tell at times when something is supposed to be two weeks ago, say when Charlotte and Bernard are seeking Peter Abernathy yeah. and then we're cutting forward to the future to a battle sequence. Well, I, I think that they, I think because we had Charlotte and Bernard met in the most present, the most, the furthest present uh, in, in this episode, they were, they kind of had to flash directly back to their previous time together. So you could tell that they were um, different points in time. Um, it is a little bit, so between that and also just the sort of like three card Monty game that's going on with Papa Abernathy the whole episode where it's like, oh, we got him. Now he's gone. Now we got him again. Now it's a different timeline and we don't know where he is. It's, it's all very like, I, I guess it's good that we know why they all want him. It, it, it is in this time of Avengers Infinity War. He is kind of the infinity gauntlet of this sure. show. You know, they have now made him seem so meaningful as to be slipping through people's hands at all times and also seemingly all powerful that we don't totally know why he would be all powerful. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting storytelling choice that they've made. It's mostly effective. It's just confusing because it it forces you to make choices to say, oh, well, he somehow he got away or somehow this person got away or he we couldn't Bernard not being able to totally figure out how to get underneath whatever's going on inside Peter mm-hmm. Abernathy's uh, robot brain. Yeah, I found a little confusing because Bernard is an all powerful robot. All powerful to an extent. We saw him. He ended the episode convulsing on the ground. That's true. Um, I will say, though. The way that Charlotte in particular treated Bernard in the sort of present tense scene when Carl Strand was there, the Carl Strand timeline, led me to believe that the craziest theory Danny suggested last week is 100% true. Which is what, Danny? Break it down quickly. Uh, can, we, can we break it down? The theory, in essence, is that 
the Bernard that wakes up on the beach in the first episode and is with Strand and Hale is actually Teddy's consciousness inside Bernard's body. And that for some reason, someone has swapped it into the body. Frankly, I believe that. But the point, the one that I, re- that I think we, we saw evidence of this weekend was that Charlotte and Strand and everybody else know Bernard to be a host. Yeah, so that, that the way that she, the way that's a separate thing that that the deity ties together. But the way that she was treating him when she was just like, "What about you, Bernard? Do you remember anything?" Yeah, yes. and like elbow, elbow. It was very like it, it seemed very clear. And we know from season one that they're not afraid to telegraph what seems to be fairly obvious to us. So there, there's definitely plausibility in play. I don't know. This is an interesting episode to talk about though, because some of the things that happened are really fun and we've been anticipating. And that's what I wanted to get into in this week's Big Idea. The Big Idea this week, Season 2, Episode 3 of Westworld, is the wider world. We opened up with just a straight-up, a lost style, here's what's going on in another dimension scene. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Tiger World or, or Colonial World, whatever you want to call it. Um, did we learn anything from our time there uh, that affects our, if we never go back, or do we learn anything that affects what we know about Westworld overall? I think so. I think we learned that the hosts in every world have some sort of agency now, right? Mm-hmm. And we, we weren't really sure that that would be the case. We weren't sure if this would be restricted entirely to Westworld or if it would affect Shogun World, which we were made aware of because of trailers. And now this other world that we didn't know anything about, but we know the hosts have turned on the humans and, and have this uh, new narrative probably that Ford yeah. created. We also know that there's, uh, just in general, there's a very wide world out there. In yes. episode one, they said when they found, what, presumably what is this tiger that was that was chasing Grace. I'm going to keep air quoting every time I say her name, by the way. The tiger chases her, jumps into the sea, and then there, a, a, in episode one, a tiger had washed up on the beach. And they said, oh, that we have tigers in, in zone six. What was it, Danny? In section in six, yeah. Section six. And so we, so we know that there's, you know, this many worlds out there. Uh, now we get an idea of what one of those worlds is like fleshed out. At the end of the episode, we got a tease for Samurai World, Shogun World. I can't wait till we decide on what to call it. You know, that was just a very, very brief tease, although we've seen a lot of that in the trailers. Uh, this is, you know, trailers are not spoiler territory to me, for the record. But, you know, and, and everybody's been talking about this since last season when we saw um, samurais practicing their sword play in a Delos lab. I think the most striking thing was how quickly Grace was able to escape certain death and find the tunnel leading out of of Tiger World. We don't know if it was an extraordinary effort crossing the English Channel or if she just kind of swam for half a mile. Well, not even that, but before that, I mean, she ran from a place where they had them Bengal tiger hunting. So this was a set up spot. And and it's and seemingly she ran away from a tiger. Again, that was one of the, was the first runaway. Ridiculously long time. Right. But I mean, the tiger could have been slow hunting or who knows. But the fact that she was able to run any distance and get to the the concrete like construction zone outside of the the world was pretty significant, right? And there was like a tripwire was the only thing keeping people from going out so that it would alert someone. It also, I found it fascinating because watching the first season of Westworld, whenever there would be some sort of man, man in black mission where he was out wandering in the desert mm-hmm. or when Wyatt's group is out wandering in the desert, you got the sense that this was a really expansive space for Westworld to exist yeah. in. When, when, um, when William, when young William with, uh, with, Logan, Logan tied yeah. up. They like went in search of the edge of Westworld, right? Yes. And it took them like days and days or some incredible amount of time to find it. Lisa Joy, the showrunner, approximated this about 500 square miles big. 
Westworld. Yeah. And so somehow Grace is able to reach the tip of the other well, world. We're, we're going to get back to Grace in the next in the next segment here. But I want to just keep, I just want to hone in on the India world or Tiger world or whatever we're going to call it. Just, to, I mean, do we think that it's a smaller world or is this just a plot? Is this a storytelling contrivance and that's it? My, my gut is the latter. My gut is that theoretically all of these parks would be designed in the same fashion and that they'd, they'd all be expansive and they'd, they're all owned by this multinational global corporation. Sure. They're, they're meant to replicate one another the same way that Disneyland replicates the size and scope of California Adventure. Yeah, I think that there, I think you could make a, I mean, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but I think you could make a compelling case that like the adventure that you're looking for if you're going to colonial India is a more contained one than the one you're going to in Westworld. So maybe if you have a half-sized island, you could do that there, right? Everything you do in Tiger World is at, you know, you're being led around by servants or, you know, by someone. Yes. By guides. So, you know, it's, it's conceivable that you could just, be following your stage directions in a much smaller place, right? Theoretically. Yeah, theoretically. But I think that for the purposes of telling the story, it makes the most sense to stay in worlds similar to Westworld, even as we venture outside of Westworld. You're absolutely right. Right? If they just had a throwaway five-minute scene in, like, I don't even know what it would be. If you're, like, living in a video game or something like that, then well, that would be deeply I mean, confusing. Tron, the story yeah. of Tron is essentially creating a new kind of reality and yeah. letting people bask in it. And you'd think that that would be the highest possible appeal. When we hear about VR technology, we don't hear about it, like, taking us back 500 years. We hear about it taking us into the future. So there's something notable about how people would choose to spend their leisure time essentially living a history book yeah. rather than— And also moving—I mean, you're talking about VR, but, I mean, moving in real life mm-hmm. and interacting physically with real things yes right yes i mean there's a much you, you could you could make it seems like there'd be you, you could make a lot more money but and spend a lot less if you just like put everybody in a in a barca lounger and and put a put a you know video camera on their head or i mean put a video screen in their eyes or yes, whatever the the overhead is quite high in this world yeah the 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 overhead and over length and over width and everything else this is a very very big world and that's what we've come to know i guess that's all i mean that's all there is to say about the wider world Let's move on to this episode's big questions. First question of the week is a very basic one. And by the way, all of the questions this week are very basic. There's not a lot of deep philosophical questions this week. We'll get into a little bit of that discussion as we go. But the first one is, who is Grace? It's kind of hard to look at her without, not hard to look at her, but it's hard to look at her climbing up on the beach without thinking and wondering, what is this going to mean? I have a theory off the top, but I I wonder if you guys do. Well, I don't have a theory per se, But I do think that a question that has now come up after three straight episodes is, who am I supposed to be rooting for? Yeah, we talked about that last week, or in week one, I think. Right. Uh, Even watching the first episode with my wife, as soon as it was over, I was like, I don't, I don't, and maybe that's just um, the trick of of narrative storytelling where we assume there has to be a hero at the center of the journey. But Mm -hmm. after the first episode, I was like, I don't even really know who I have any allegiance to whatsoever. And maybe we met someone with whom we need to have allegiance. She survived a tiger attack. She survived a host revolt. She's Mm -hmm. a human being, we think. And she's also like a compelling television actress. And those people often get our allegiance. So that, that struck me as, I don't know if it's necessarily a theory that she is our hero, but it's plausible. I mean, Danny and I were talking after we watched this episode, and, we're, and I was just like, who, who is this? Both of us just sort of like bonked our heads, and we were just like, oh, that's William's daughter. Yeah, I, that crossed my mind, too. William's daughter is Emily, I think, and in the, in the, it was introduced as Emily last yeah. episode. But one of my favorite things about Westworld Season 1, one of my favorite little, like, Reddit found this, and I thought it was just incredible— 
was the dude who was cast, I don't even know his name and there's no reason to, but the random actor who was cast to play Wyatt in those weird in the blurry Wyatt flashback scenes, he had a beard and everything else, but if you looked at his IMDb page, clean shaven, he looked exactly like Dolores. Like they look like they could be twins. Wow. That's I think that's good news for him. Well, yeah, but also it's like you, but, and I, and I just, I don't care if this is true or not. I believe it, that they were just like the, we, he has to be a dude in the flashbacks. We're going to find the actor that looks most like Evan Rachel Wood, you know, and, and, it's, and it's, you know, and it, and it was just as a cool, and it, it hardly mattered, but it mattered. And do we think Grace looks like Ed Harris? Huh? Do we think Grace looks like Ed no, Harris? Is that your point? But Grace looks a lot like the girl who played the daughter last episode. Okay. If you put, it's like, they don't look people grow and they change the way they look. If mm-hmm. you put, if you look at their IMDb photos side by side, you're like, yes, they would be cast as mother and daughter or like old and young Grace. Right. When we share this podcast on Twitter, we'll be sharing a photo of Danny Heifetz <laughs> at age five and Danny Heifetz today, just to show, just to prove your point, Dave. <laughs> and just we'll put a, thro- a photo of Mike Francesa as the third one for just the, <laughs> the evolution is complete. Uh, back um, after this. So it, it's not, Rocket science, it's on one hand, it's just she's the right age based on how old the daughter was in the flashback. And then also just this character just has to be able to tie some plot stuff together. And William's daughter would do a lot of that. One, she would give William a purpose that he doesn't really have because she blames him based on the story he tells. She blames him for leading his wife to suicide or driving Uh over there. So their relationship is extremely fractured. So that would give him some purpose, but she would also really accomplish a lot for the plot because she would presumably be a huge shareholder in the company or the heir to a lot of shares, the controlling stake. And that would really be able to give us the 30,000 foot view of Delos and whatever the hell this company is and what they're doing with this data, which we really need someone to start getting into that. Can I raise a counterpoint to why I think she maybe isn't? I'm sure I'm pretty sure that she is honestly. No, 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 please raise your counterpoint. Um, Nobody wants to get into business with their parents. You know, nobody wants to do exactly the thing that their parents did. And if the man in black is so profoundly invested in this world, wouldn't you think that she would want to be as far away from it as possible? That's what I mean. People always. Yeah. But if you're if your parent says you can do anything in the world except my business, then that's what you want to do. Oh, interesting. So here's a second. Here's a second one for you. A counter counter. OK. What if she's Logan's daughter? Oh, taking back like Logan and his sister had a child. I'm just kidding. Yeah, (laughs) but basically, she would be angry that William took the company from her father, and she wants it back. I think that that's that 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 kind of misdirect relies on the idea that everybody would have assumed that she was William's daughter, and I think that might be expecting too much. Also, I think one episode ago we met the the camera lingered on a young, (laughs) like wavy haired blonde girl. Uh, and and then exact and then precisely one week later we yeah. meet someone grown up. <laughs> You're absolutely right. That that this seems entirely plausible. And so with that, would it make sense for her to be the hero of the story since maybe the man in black is is a little bit more um, complicated as a figure sure. to us? Yeah, I think that's right. By the I way, hope when, the motive when, of a labor uprising is not root for the heiress to a trillion dollar company. <laughs> um, when when she was, when when her hiring was announced on dead, uh, deadline.com, uh, it would said the 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 piece said. Grace, who will be played by Katja Herbers, is described as, quote, a seasoned guest in Westworld whose latest visit comes at the park's darkest hour. She knew her way around the park. And then literally she knew her way around the park because she knew right how to escape. And like there was no she didn't run out of the forest and say, wait, where the hell am I? She made a beeline for the train tunnel or whatever. You know, I mean, she she knew where she was going. I'm glad that she came back. I feel like I want this to be part of a bigger narrative. Everything needs to be part of the, the story as a whole, not just like, here's what it looks like. Here's an example of something going wild somewhere else to sort of underscore the fact that the hosts have gone amok. I, yeah, I, I think that this show 
is in desperate need of a figure like this around whom they can build some sort of narrative story because of so much of that Wyatt, Dolores stuff that we'll talk about, because of the lack of consistency in the Maeve story and a lot of the like, oh, look, we found our old friends aspect of everything that Maeve does. Maeve doesn't do a lot of stuff, right? And a lot of long arc sort of stuff, or at least she hasn't so far. And that's and you're right, that makes it. Hard. She's the natural protagonist, but it, but it's a little bit hard to root for her actively right now. Yeah, we know that her quest is purposeless. We know that her desire to be reunited with someone who isn't real is like ultimately sentiment and not strategy. Let's let's just go ahead and talk about Maeve right now. The second big question of the week: Did Maeve do anything worth talking about on this episode of the Recapables? She she showed us a flamethrower. Here's the thing: <laughs> yeah, everything that Maeve is, everything that Maeve did in this episode, and and most of the things she's done this season have been things that have hap- have been happening incidentally as Maeve has been walking through hallways. Right? She encounters a thing, and we learn something about Westworld. But Maeve's arc herself is her taking a very long journey to find her daughter when Grace, whether or not that is her name, can seemingly like run 500 miles escaping a tiger in 15 seconds of showtime. Now, part of this is just narrative structure. It's not that big of a deal. But what I'm saying is if the if the only point in telling the story was for Maeve to find her, her daughter, Maeve could have found her daughter in episode one. I will walk through a thousand hallways to, with Maeve if she brings me to Samurai World. I'm 100% confident yes, that this it will is be Everything it. that she does, is everything. it's what's happening around Maeve. It's not what Maeve's doing. I, I think yeah. she had a little bit of a breakthrough in this episode, though. I think finding her way to Shogun World is obviously meant to indicate the next step. They just had to find a way to kind of spin her wheels for three episodes yeah. before letting us get to the mm-hmm. next narrative stage of her story. You're right. But you're right, though, that it's kind of ridiculous that she just kind of wandered and like was reunited with uh, Hector, and then she was reunited with Sizemore, and then she was reunited with Felix, Felix and, and Sylvester and it's like, Armistice and you yeah. know like it was it, it was narrative threading it would be great if like either Felix or Sylvester had gotten their legs blown off or just like <laughs> there needed to be like some some level of like some stakes yeah, yeah. I think, and said it's every single character from the finale is now alive and reunited in different groups I do think this doesn't really explain what you guys are saying, but I think from the showrunner perspective, I think in the new intro this year, there is the mother clutching the, do- the baby that is almost certainly supposed to represent Maeve. Sure. And I think that to your point earlier about whether her relationship with her daughter is real or not, it's programming. You know, what is the difference between her loving this daughter of memories and you loving like, you know, a child? Like, what is the real difference there? And I think that her developing a maternal instinct and really this instinct to connect with people beyond her is probably at the root of why she's randomly meeting up with these people. Agreed. And 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 they are doing a good job of interweaving some significance into these scenes. And and the one that I mean the one the scene in the riverbed I think is worth discussing just a little bit more deeply for two reasons. One, she has upon seeing the Native American, the first guy, she has a flashback to that guy uh, I guess killing her daughter in a previous uh, go round. And then two, she tries to control him and fails. Two separate issues, but, you know, I think that the flashback thing is an issue of consciousness, and and as much as I pushed against it, uh, I think in the first episode we did, I feel like more and more I would not be surprised if this season became a conversation about maybe Maeve is more fully awake than Dolores. My gut reaction upon starting the season was that that was too complicated a question to ask about Dolores. Is she not quite? Is she not fully awake? I know we're not in the, the Dolores portion of this conversation, so we're going to get there. I'll hold my answer. But anyway, Maeve's flashbacks, I think, are you know, it's it, there is a very. The, I mean, the fact that this is happening, and then Bernard, I guess, had a flashback earlier too, in some sense. So that might have just been a narrative technique. But um, what do you think, Danny? What do you think about her inability to control? 
at times. And uh, and and if any, if you have anything to say about the flashback, that too. So I could be wrong, but I don't think she's ever failed to control a host until that moment. So it could be one specifically because the relationship she had with that dude and the background there uh-huh. could be one explanation. Meaning that revealed a weakness in her. Yeah, that okay. maybe she isn't exactly. The other one that I'm also leaning toward is actually that it's actually something related to actually all the Native American hosts at large, that they actually are very different from the other hosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the pilot episode, the man in black ha- kidnaps that that poker dealer who's Native American, and he scalps him and says, there's a lot of wisdom in ancient cultures. And that is, I mean, you can see that that is, on HBO Go, that is the thumbnail for the first episode in the whole series, actually. Now, that was supposed to be a much bigger character throughout season one, but the actor who played that character, Eddie Rouse, actually passed away after they filmed it, and they had to completely rewrite everything out of respect for him. So the, I really believe the Native American cultural aspect of this is going to play a much bigger role in season two, and I wouldn't be shocked if part of it extends to the Native American hosts are actually very diff, quite literally differently wired yeah. than the other ones. Yeah, and we saw it in the first episode of the season when um, when Carl Strand has the the Native American host's mind red on the beach. They have, he has the maze tattooed on the inside of his thing. And they're just like, I don't know what they're the hell this is. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's a better metaphor for like the doomed Delo squad than like quite literally disturbing Native American burial grounds to like start the season. I my the, the, the theory that is not true that I would just love for just for the whole, just for the clusterfuck of the whole thing was that it, if it turns out the Native Americans are just humans and that they've just been <laughs> hanging out in Westworld the whole time. Well, we know that that's not true. We've I know. seen the scalping. It's okay. There, there's some of them could be human. Uh, I think there's like a, there is definitely, I, this isn't a theory so much as a broad metaphor about Westward expansion, yes, colonialism, totally true. the way that essentially like white power and money tries to conquer other worlds. Yep. And th- there's no doubt that they're leaning heavily into that storytelling this season. That said, for all of the literary references we've seen, I it would just make me happy if the main literary basis for the show was the Sneetches, and it's just people like going back and forth between humans and hosts like in a big circle. That's that would, all I want. That would be confusing. Um, that kind of gets back to episode two, how this went over our heads, but the conversation between Maeve and Dolores and about what the journey should be actually was in many ways a veil criticism of white feminism of sorts and a diversification of a, a lot of conversations. You got to clue me in on this stuff. Is there <laughs> anything you you sent me? A, you sent me a photo the other day of um, uh, was it? Oh yeah, Zon McLaren's character, uh, Achita, who is the oh yeah, who is the the Dulles representative that met with Logan in episode two in the nightclub along with Angela, um, who we know to be a host. We know to be a host, but what, what was that picture so from? He has, I think, he has a huge role coming up. He's he's featured in a lot of the trailers. He's I, he's in a lot of face paint, but I think that that is going to be the same character, and that he. But where was it? Where was it when he was in the white paint? Where was, was that from this episode, or was that from a few, like a flash forward thing? Uh, it's from it's from trailers. Okay, it's from the trailer. All right. I'm not a hundred percent sure if he's the same guy on the beach it in is. the first. Oh episode. no, no, no. He's, I don't think he is, but no. we'll see. But. Anyway, he's going to have a bigger role. This tribe will have a bigger role. Um, and we'll see whether or not Maeve has anything to do with this or is this is just introducing a totally separate um, narrative line for us to follow. The third big question of the week is the Battle of Fort, Fort Forlorn Hope. What happened? What were the stakes? And what was the point of all of that stuff? It was a weird battle. I was really confused by it. Part of it was an, an issue of expectations. It had all of the trappings and it hit at the exact right minute mark of the show that your penultimate episode of Game of Thrones for the season big battle would have happened. So it sort of like jostled you into this like, are you like, am I supposed to be caring about this a whole lot? Because leading up to this, I didn't care about this at all. 
And then when you see all of the Delos crew storming in and they're stupid just walking up and dune buggies and it like I don't understand this technology situation at all. This is a trillion dollar corporation. This is how they're seeking to wage war on the product that they created. Could you not just drop a giant bomb on this thing? Yeah. I guess if they're trying to preserve their into, their their literal intellectual property. They're the fact that the, the, if they blow something up, they lose that product. Sure. Oh, and I guess Abernathy's there, and they have to. But, gra- I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why, but it's also like, come on. It just it just was not a very expertly uh, composed battle. You know, the way that even just watching it, it just didn't make a lot of logical sense. No, and then the and when the like the Delos crew eventually just got. Uh, I mean, it's not spoiling anything if you've seen the episode to say the Delos crew basically got lured up to the wall and then exploded. Yes. But somehow, as they're all outside engaging in like gunfare with a bunch of muskets, like the other team has muskets, you've got submachine guns, but they're still sort of like held at bay. But two dudes just get through the wall and grab Peter Abernathy and run off. And there's no one there to stop it except Bernard, who falls in the corner. And Dolores just happens to see it over her shoulder and is like, oh, damn. And just goes out and starts shooting at them, but even she can't do it. It all seems just like everybody was was so ineffectual in this fight scene. Danny, you're itching. What what do you want? What do you need to say? I love this show, but this scene made me feel really stupid. <laughs> and this is my award for like uh, the dumbest humans of the week. But I'm just gonna have to do it now. Because Go for it. It was like the show gave me two giant middle fingers for loving it so much. Because when these mercenaries show up on the beach in the first episode, you're like, oh, my God, these are badasses. So when I'm like, oh, they have to extract Abernathy. They have to do the raid. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be crazy. It's going to be like SEAL Team 6 and a Bada They're going to have their silence P90s and night vision goggles and all this stuff. And they're like, no, no, no. What if, what if we just walk across an open field in the middle of the day to the front door. And then when we get like halfway there, we'll start opening fire as soon as we definitely know they can see us. And then you know what? We're going to have like cars roll up, but those cars won't have doors or windows or window shields. And it's just like so insulting if you've ever played Call of Duty yeah. or like know that like snipers exist or like if you have a brain. It's it's actually upsetting because this show demands such a it insists upon so much attention to detail on behalf of the audience and the showmakers that for someone that loves it so much and spends a really like sad amount of time looking into details on Reddit, that for something as simple as like, why are like these high future trained mercenaries just walking across an open field and like losing to these civil war dudes? Yeah, it's I'm like, not, oh my God. It's, it's easy to second guess. It's easy to fantasy book, but I'm not quite sure how this wouldn't have been just as easy and, and better if it had been like a crazy SWAT team attack under the cover of darkness. And then instead of having Dolores project her plan out over and over again throughout the episode, just make it look like she was surprised and that they were losing. And then she just like blows everybody up and it's fine because she and her friends are hosts and they can bring themselves back to life. I think one of the things here too, is it's a real testament to the power of like Catherine Bigelow or Michael. Yeah, There's a visual logic that has to happen in these scenes where we could have made this plan to attack the Confederados make more sense if it just was executed a little bit more differently. And the fact that it's just kind of confusing and a little ugly to look at, honestly, that it it actually takes away from the power of the storytelling. And you're right, Danny, completely. Like, this is a show that sometimes thinks more is more too often and a lower stakes plan would have made for better storytelling in this case. And I don't, I actually don't usually feel that way about this, but this one in particular, I think we're all kind of scratching our heads. 
And also, yeah. I just, as someone who like really believes in this show a lot and really thought that season one was a lot of prologue and season two you're going to get the set pieces, like, if on paper, like, m- like mercenaries attacking a Civil War fort, like, how can you screw that up with HBO's budget and $10 million an episode? And, like, two years after HBO did Battle the Bastards, which is, like, one of the most realistic and gruesome depictions of war I've ever yeah. seen on any TV show, to two years later get this, like, A&E made-for-TV reboot nonsense— <laughs> When I'm like this, like this is just—it's below what HBO has set their own bar. At. I think the, I think it goes back to something that you're saying though, which is that part of the issue here is that we have no relationship to any of these Delos figures, and we have very little relationship well, to any of the Confederados. So, th- what are we even really they, hoping to have? They they were forced to put Charlotte into the scene, even though that made less sense. Than, I mean, the, the, <laughs> if there's anything that season one established, it's that like if you wear a suit, that you just stay inside. Yes, right, and that and. And that she was just like, give me one of those flak jackets, I'm going with you, and you have to listen. And the guy's like, no, but I have conflicting orders. And she's like, no, I'm going. It's like, do you have orders or you do not have orders, you know? Why would that millionaire executive put herself in the line of fire there? I, I was exactly. going to say, it's Let proof me- that she has equity and not a salary. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Um, the rest of the, of, the, of the fight, the other big thing that was happening was, was – uh, you know, that Abernathy and Papa Abernathy and Bernard were captured, you know, early in the show and arrived at the fort. And Dolores encountered them both. One, her father, who she loves, and her, her stake in him is that she loves him, um, contrary to Charlotte and every other human stake in him, which is that he has the, you know, the the CPU on his brain. <laughs> um uh, and then she, then Bernard, who she's sort of dismissive of at first, she has to, you know, make nice with him so that he'll heal her dad. I mean, did anything happen? Was it, was there any news in that in, in Bernard investigating uh, uh, Papa Abernathy? I don't really think. I think we can see that Bernard is really fraying, and yeah. there's something going on with him, and that seemed to be more revelatory. There, there was a real withholding of information about what Abernathy actually has here, and his sort of delusions about the cows, and the the confusion around repeating narratives over time and the way that those things have overlapped and confused some of these hosts, I think is relevant, but I don't know. Dan, you probably know. Do you want to talk about the cows, Danny? I think I was going to get to, well, yes, in terms of what Abernathy has, I don't think it's groundbreaking. I think it's going to be kind of a very thin metaphor. Sun Tzu, the greatest weapon in war is information. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of just all it is. And he's got all the dirty secrets of all the guests in the history of Westworld downloaded into his hard drive. The one thing I will say is, and you pointed this out when you wrote about the show earlier this year, this, this guy, Lewis Hertham, who plays him, is fantastic. He's a really, really good actor. The weirdest thing about all of uh, we, we talked about Grace's hiring earlier um, and the same thing about um, Zon McLarnon. The, 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 the thing that I didn't experience last season on Reddit and everywhere else that I'm experiencing now are just like the casting decisions that are like written into press releases and made into articles. But he was formally promoted onto the main cast between seasons one and two. Interesting. And that was a big step up. Now we know he really, really matters. Yeah, I think that's about it. The the cattle thing, which I I mean, at at some point, I mean, at the point where he is lying on the bed and going crazy and he recognizes his daughter, which is pretty profound that he recognizes her. And we'll come back around to this. But I think one of the things we're continuing to see is whatever the new the new game that or the new storyline that Ford invented was, he flipped a switch and it released the the hosts. But to some to for for many of them. That release only allowed them to embrace sort of their most vile tendencies to the with the volume turned up, and for some it allows some sort of wokeness. And we'll see where where Peter Abernathy lies in that chart. But anyway, he's lying in bed, but he's flashing back to their home life back on the ranch, um, and he says, you know, that he's worried about the cattle in the field. Uh, Ed Dolores says, "Don't worry, I'll lead them home." 
And clearly this is a metaphor for her, her leading the, you know, the hosts, that the stray hosts uh, to the promised land. Which is what? So, which according last episode, it seems like the the by repetition that her goal, the her for her glory, the land beyond whatever is the world outside, the real world. Yeah. So in the pilot, you're right. The the real world <laughs> as opposed to Tigerland yeah. that's like down the street. But in the pilot, so Teddy and Dolores are standing on a hill overlooking their cattle herd, and well, Dolores' cattle herd, and there's one leading the whole herd, and Teddy asks what it is, and Dolores explains that that is the Judas steer. And that anywhere that one goes, the herd will follow. Now, that often leads to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's a pretty on-the-nose metaphor to what you were saying about that she's leading these hosts. Now, the question is, is she leading them to the next world or is she leading them directly to their deaths and the bottom of that sea? Well, and in this episode, we found out that she's leading a lot of them to their slaughter because, as she says repeatedly, uh, I mean, now she said a couple of times, like, not everybody deserves to get to the promised land. And if she's Judas, who's Jesus? Well, I don't know that the Judas steer necessarily needs a Jesus corollary. The idea is that it's just the turncoat of the group who, you know, does whatever they want him to do. And then all the other animals follow him. We don't want to pose Grace as a potential Jesus here. I think Maeve has got to be Jesus in this story. I think Maeve along the Jon Snow lines of reluctant leader is always usually the one you want to follow. All right. That's it for straight up questions. (laughs) Great. Now we're transitioning into categories. Go. Uh, we're talking a little bit about Dolores. I want to. I'm, I'm, I'm piloting a new category for us this week. It's a new question that we're going to ask every week. How exciting! Inspired by the Ringer's own Amanda Dobbins, this category is known as "What's Your Damage?" <laughs> Where every week or every week or so, we will ask just a very basic car- question for everybody watching out there that's just wondering what's wrong with this person and why are they so mad. This week, we're going to talk about Dolores. And this answer, if you want to tell me, I want both of you to explain to me what you believe Doris's damage, Dolores's damage to be. You can answer in one word or one sentence. This doesn't have to be a big discussion. Why is Dolores so pissed off? What's her damage? I think it's Oedipal. Like, it's Oedipus Rex. I think that her father and her Teddy have, she's an interesting relationship with both. Both were lawmen, and I think that that actually is kind of where that storyline's going. Isn't the real Oedipal storyline there, though, about her creators? Yeah. The people who made her mm-hmm. and the new narrative that they have set forth for her. Um, I, I think that there's definitely some truth to that, that they're trying to create some some metaphorical resonance to why she's lost the plot. On the other hand, I thought at the end of this episode that we were meant to believe that Dolores doesn't know what she's doing. That yeah. like her plan, it, it, evil has no plan in a lot of ways, and there is something inherently evil about the destruction that she is seeking. And a lot of times it's just wrong or off or failing. And I didn't really, that didn't strike me in the first two episodes. The first two episodes, I was like, she has the chance to be all powerful. Yeah. And in this episode, I was like, she's dumb. And she like trusted Teddy and that was a mistake. And she thinks that she can still have a relationship with her father and that's a mistake. And there's all these flaws in what she's putting together that came to the surface. I think, I alluded to this earlier. I think that that we're going to be talking about, we're going to have some question about how woke she actually is. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and maybe it's that she is awakened, but she is also flawed. And that's sort of what you were saying. You know, maybe she, maybe she's somewhere between uh, the guys, the hosts like Rebus who are like, who are theoretically set free, but they're just like rounding up hostages and, and, you know, the fully enlightened version, whether that's Maeve or somebody else. Um, But, You know, season one ended with her killing Ford, but it did feel it did seem very, very much like Ford 
put that plan into action, specifically Absolutely. by words that he said, but also this was the inciting incident of his new narrative. You know, he wasn't going to leave that up to chance. And now she's fulfilling a very important role in this narrative, which is like being the agent of chaos in Westworld. You know, if it weren't for her, sure, they would, I mean, Delos would probably take the fort. Uh, the you know the guys like Rebus and and the Confederados would be doing their thing, but they'd eventually get rounded up. It's Dolores is Dolores is is creating the instability that is allowing this narrative to flourish. So I wonder if to what degree she's actually still following a script. If I can amend my answer a bit, I think <laughs> the it's more like Antigone. To be I fair. think well, <laughs> I think that Dolores. What's really eating at her, as she explains to her father, is the others don't understand. And, you know, she did it with the pull of a trigger. That was almost the forbidden fruit, like Eve and the oh, Garden no, of Eden. This is getting edited out. <laughs> uh, but really that she has this burden of knowledge. I think that the other hosts aren't quite nearly. I think the only but, other host who's awake with her is Maeve. Totally agree. Degree. I totally agree with that to some extent. But if you want to go, if you if you want to make the case that she is less free than she realizes, it does sort of seem like she's stuck in a loop. Like she's saying the same, she's saying the same, I'm awakened catchphrases, like in some repetitive way every single week. It doesn't seem like she's evolving beyond where she was in episode one. This was the first week where I felt like this was clearly a false prophet narrative. Yeah. That that was what they, how they were positioning her. And it's like, this is potentially extraordinarily self-indicting. But did you ever have a job where your boss is standing in front of you and sketching out the vision for what you're trying to do? And the whole time that person's speaking, you're like... This guy's full of shit, man. I've been doing that with you this entire time. I know, Danny. This is why I say it. And there is a version of that that happened with her in this episode. And Teddy Teddy has given her the side eye to let us all know that that's how we should be feeling, too. Yes. Um, Anything else about Dolores this week? I mean, I think that that the answer to the question, to what's her damage, is, one, she has been been tortured for her for 30 years or longer, and— is and and is more acutely aware of that than any of the other hosts and certainly than any of the human beings and she is acting out in a natural angry response to that. Um possible answer too is this is part of a plan. Yes. This is she she's following a script. All right. That's what's your damage for this week. Thank you Amanda. Um and thank you guys for listening. And now it's time for the awards. The first award for the biggest or most shocking reveal it has to either be Tiger World or Shogun World. I mean, I guess if you want to, you know, Shogun World is, it was the, you know, shocking little stinger on the end. Tiger World was more of a reveal, you know, as a as a big thing. But there's is there anything else we should be talking about? I, mean, I think that the entire Grace concept is a, is a pretty shocking thing. But I thought that that was a cool narrative sleight of hand to show us Tiger World before Shogun World. I yes. That, that was smart and impressive, and we were all completely disoriented well, watching the show at the beginning because we were like, what is this? Yeah, and your mind's trying to remember if there were, like, peacocks in Japan, you know, and you're just, like, trying <laughs> to like, get the whole thing is, like, it, like you're, you, you, you're, you have to work, and that's important. Yes. Now, we'll probably get right into Shogun World next episode unless we do... An hour of the man in black. I mean, I guess or, anything's possible. Or maybe another world. Maybe we'll be in Antarctica world, you know, that we don't really know what where they're going to take us. What would you like to go to, Sean? If this, if you could build Westworld, you can only go backwards in time and you have to wear period clothing. Uh, I like 1994 Seattle grunge world. <laughs> so that would, be, <laughs> I think that would be fun. I, I would do, kind of there. I would do Halo 2. We have to keep moving. Award number two <laughs> for the week. Best quote. Or monologue, I guess. This this episode, if you want to get into some of the stuff Dolores said, 
um, there was some stuff. And but like I said, she's been fairly repetitive. This was pretty light on the big, big, big picture exposition that makes you feel like you're in philosophy class. So, um, Sean, what was your quote of the week? I had one uh, second place descriptor, which is calling the colonel described Dolores as a flaccid plum. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> which was really, that was actually quite a turn of phrase. My favorite quote was um, from Bernard, this world is just a speck of dust sitting on a much, much bigger mm-hmm. world. There's no dominating it. And I think that is that is subtextual and textual about this whole show. It was interesting because it was a really profound line that was immediately undercut by Dolores. Now, again, who knows to what degree we're supposed to respect what Dolores has to say, but she follows it up with, you know, I've been outside. It's a bunch of people trying to survive and look at us. We're basically immortal, but we're not even trying to survive. And she was like, you know, there's beauty in what we are. That's the that's the sort of most profound thing I feel like she said this week. Yep. There's beauty in what we are. Shouldn't we, too, try to survive? Um, so, yeah, I thought that was an interesting sort of back and forth there. And we're seeing, you know, this season is a lot about kind of call and response. It's not just someone saying a profound thing. It's someone saying a thing and someone else saying like, ah, but I've figured this out in a different way. It's a great point. Um I don't know, Danny, did you have a quote this week? Other than making Flaccid Plum my new Twitter bio? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, if, I'm just going to pick Rebus after he gets his like Madden sliders changed, and he's like, wait, I'll escort you! <laughs> just because we all laughed while we were watching it, and I just remember in that moment thinking, wait, why isn't this show funnier? Yeah. Uh, and I do kind of wish that if there was something of like a sense of humor slider, like, by the way, my, more moments should be like my, that. My, my quote of the week, and there were, I liked, there, there, you, can, you can get some interesting conversations out of Felix saying, we left my comfort zone a long time ago. <laughs> Uh, Charlotte sort of wry comment, Bernard, you made it out alive. Didn't think you had it in you. Like there's stuff to be said. My favorite quote was also Rebus right after they turned up the, turned up the hero and, uh, and the, the, chivalry crack shot, the chivalry bar. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, this is, it's such a role playing game at this point. It's awesome. But he said, when he's shooting all of his old buddies, he screams, I'm just heeding my convictions. <laughs> and it's just like, like, I just love that. Uh, this whole show is about heeding conven- convictions, but that showed just how, um, fickle the entire uh, the entire enterprise is. All right, one more award. Our weekly award, the the this maze was not meant for you award for dumbest human. Danny alluded to you, you alluded to yours earlier. It's uh, you want to tell us one more time who it is. It's SEAL Team Delos for walking across a field in a formation that wouldn't win a game of dodgeball, and then uh, using cars that are like the cars you drive on like a golf range to pick up balls. I think that's my vote too. Uh, you you can make the case for Grace. John, do you want to make the case for Grace? I don't. Uh, I'm ready to root for Grace. I, I would make the case for Charlotte. Um, the decisions that she makes in the episode, her like breathless getaway on the horse, followed by her desire to enter the war zone. I thought all of that stuff was slightly confounding and more like an effort to just keep Tessa Thompson on the show because she's such a such a powerful force. But the choices that she makes were pretty dumb. You can make the case for Grace for trying to take on a tiger with a gun. You can make the case for Felix for just being Felix. I think the big winner for Dumbest Human this week was, yes, every member of uh, SEAL Team Delos. Danny, do you want to hit us with any uh, crazy theories or, or uh, reality or, or uh, stat updates from this week? Yeah, sure. We we hit on a lot. So the first, the title of the episode is Virtu F. Fortuna. Did I get that right? You got it right. Which ref- That refers to The Prince by Machiavelli. The Sparknotes version of, the, of that part of the book is Machiavelli says a lot of life is randomness, luck, and things that are out of our control, but strong leaders should have the skills and ability to get what they want anyway. Dolores hits on this a bit when she says to Bernard, there is beauty in what we are. Shouldn't we, too, try to survive? Not great for the humans. Uh, Peter Abernathy says, 
what is the use of a violent kind of delightfulness if there's no pleasure in getting or yeah, yeah. N- not getting tired of it? That's actually a quote from a Gertrude Stein poem from 1915, A Substance in a Cushion, which is about like clothes, but it's really about language, perception, change, and how a word can have double, triple meanings, which is what Westworld <clears throat> is. Uh, and then Abernathy also saying, I need to get to the train, just reminded me so much of Inception. You were waiting for a train, which is obviously from his brother, uh, Nolan's brother, Christopher. Dolores says to Bernard at Fort Forlorn Hope, you don't know who you are, do you? The man you're based on, I wonder if there is any of him in you. Uh, we still have no idea how Bernard passed the DNA scan in the season premiere, so maybe Bernard does have some of Arnold in him. And then Bernard's response to Dolores was, I was given a character and a story and a function to serve, just like you. Could Arnold have based Dolores off of somebody in the human world? And That's interesting. We got that tease from Sizemore, how he, how he based the uh, Hector's love life off of his own. Exactly. Can I read you just a little bit of a description underlining the Virtui Fortuna yeah, go aspect ahead. of what Machiavelli is getting at? Please. So the figure of the goddess Fortuna, luck or fortune, was derived from classical Roman mythology where she was often portrayed in a positive light. Though she was fickle and uncertain, she was also the bringer of good luck and abundance, and one of her symbols was an overflowing cornucopia. Is that character, is Fortuna Dolores? Maeve? Grace? I don't know. Think about it. Huh. Well, I like that. I I, I like that that you got poetry in again this week. I think the more <laughs> the more I'm like deep diving on this stuff, the more it's clear that like you know Nolan and Joy are like big poetry heads. The most interesting sort of stuff, like reunion parallels last week. I think there was a there was a poem that I that I spent a long time staring at. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of poetry built into this. Maeve's last name is Malay. I don't think we're gonna. I don't think that's any accident. Anyway, thank you guys for doing this. Wait, we didn't talk about the Seven Nation Army on a sitar. Jeez, this has been a this has been a episode one of this season. I think had zero like modern uh, sound cues, modern music sound cues. The past two weeks, we had Kanye and Seven Nation Army, which is just sort of like your parents' idea, a cool dad's idea of what kids listen to. Unfortunately, yeah, some University of Miami graduate thinks um, that that's cool. How do I put money on the season finale having bulls on parade cover and piano? <laughs> Is piano? I think I think you got to go different than piano. If you want to make if you want to make a bet that'll pay you back a lot of money, you got it's got to be like bulls on parade on uh, the accordion. Would that be like in Hemingway world? Where would that be? <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. We'll see you back uh, at Hemingway World. Uh, we'll be back here on the on Westworld the recap bulls on Tuesday morning probably to break down some of the crazy theories in a really quick episode. And this very long episode has been a whole lot of fun. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, David. Thank you, Danny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. Podcasting. Uh, I almost made it. Am I fired now? Two podcasts. I'm fired now. Someone uh, said, so yeah, someone whispered freeze all motor functions to him before I gave him that. <laughs> before I gave him that cue. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back here soon. Our theme song was made by our friends at songfinch.com. Check out Songfinch to turn your stories, memories, and feelings into a one-of-a-kind song by professional musicians. It makes the perfect gift for any occasion. songfinch.com.